The USDA offers their first interpretation of the impact of the Russia-Ukraine war in the March WASD. But in a news world that's changing by the minute, how are traders weighing a report that's months in the making? That's today on Field Posts. is a DTN Progressive Farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. The March WASD dropped Wednesday, March 9th, with USDA offering revised figures on Ukraine wheat and corn supplies given the state of the ongoing conflict in the region. DTN's Todd Holtman joins us today to unpack the latest news out of Eastern Europe and South America and to discuss how roiled markets are thinking about basis, among other indicators, as prices for all the major grains reach highs not seen in years. We'll discuss the energy crunch and what that could mean for ethanol and biodiesel demand, livestock updates from USDA, the continuing impacts of inflation, global sanctions, and shipping slowdowns, and signs that China might be back in the U.S. corn market, right after these words from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by MyDTN. In today's environment, it's essential, more than ever, to get the most current and accurate information to help save your valuable resources and continue to be profitable. Get access to all the information you need to deal with this change from DTN. As the leading independent trusted source of actionable insights and market information, MyDTN gives you accurate weather forecasts, the most extensive database of grain bids, and the most timely news and analysis from our award-winning news team. These features and more are available 24-7 via desktop, laptop, and any mobile device to be with you on the go. Learn more at mydtn.com and start a free 14-day trial. Now, back to the show. DTN lead analyst Todd Holtman joins us today to discuss the March world supply and demand estimates. Todd, we're here at the March WASD, which is the last big report before planting intentions and some other bigger reports come out a little bit later in the spring. Talk to us about the expectations going into this report, given everything that is going on in the world. What did traders think they were going to see from USDA? Yeah, I, my big concern, Sarah, was that we wouldn't even pay attention to this report almost on any level because of the events going on in Ukraine and how that's really hijacked the market's attention, especially in the last week or more. But there there are some items in here that I think are of interest, and USDA did make some adjustments pertaining to the situation in Ukraine. And aside from all that, we do still have South American crops growing and there was quite a bit of attention on USDA's new estimates for those crops. Before we get into some of those adjustments uh, with the news coming out of Ukraine, talk to us about how markets reacted coming out of this report. As you look at what happened, any indication that much of that came from the report, or is that just where the markets are <laughs> frenetic at the moment? Yeah, honestly, I don't think there was anything in the report that really had much of a price impact that I could tell on Wednesday's activity. Wheat prices were already sharply lower even before the report came out, and then they ended down limit on the day. Corn and soybeans, I, I think soybeans was the only one that traded uh, a little higher before the report and finished lower by the end of the session. But 
I can't really point to anything in the report and, and say that uh, it really caused the change in soybeans. I want to talk about the those Ukraine updates. We heard Ukraine has put an export ban on essentially all of their agricultural exports as the conflict continues. What did USDA think that might mean in terms of impacts for global supplies? Of course, the the ban was announced Wednesday morning, so it wasn't really a, a factor or con- included in the WASDRI report per se. But it's no surprise that Ukraine is having troubles exporting at this time. So USDA did reduce its export estimates for corn and wheat coming out of Ukraine. I think it was 6 million metric tons lower in corn and 4 million metric tons lower in wheat. They also took 3 million metric tons off of the wheat export estimate for Russia. Those were not big surprises, but certainly adjustments that are warranted. And we'll probably see those export estimates come down even further in a future report. I'm curious, as you watch some of those uh, adjustments play out, who is likely to be most affected? Obviously, in a global commodity market, prices spread across the globe. But in terms of regular buyers from Ukraine, regular buyers from Russia, who are the folks who would be most directly affected as some of those shortages start to come into play? Yes. Well, as you say, prices distribute everywhere. So we all get the benefit of the higher prices, even in the U.S., where USDA actually decreased our export estimate, which uh, is kind of ironic in this situation. But the biggest beneficiaries, I think, of wheat not coming out of the Black Sea region are Eastern Europe and Europe in general. They're just better positioned. They've still got supplies. They had good production last year. They didn't have the drought that we did here in North America. Europe is going to be the most obvious uh, one to benefit from the lower wheat trade coming out of the Black Sea. And I want to bring it back to home to talk a little bit more about wheat here at the top. We have winter wheat in the ground. We have drought conditions persisting in the West. It's nearly the end of winter, getting into spring, and and not much has changed on that front. As the end of the wheat season approaches this summer, what is all this likely to mean for U.S. producers, U.S. growers as they approach harvest? I can't say that the fundamental situation supports the levels we're at because wheat prices have, in in Chicago, we've hit new all-time highs. In Kansas City, we're up among our highest prices since 2008. So that's a very high bar to support. But overall, fundamentally, this drought situation is likely going to hurt our production this year in the U.S. and possibly in Canada, too, we'll uh, see in time with that. So Wheat prices ought to definitely stay in the profitable category of things. They ought to be well supported. But I can't say this wartime excitement is going to last all through the summer. So there's still so much volatility out of this situation. It's tough to call. But overall, I think it's fair to say wheat prices will be higher. They'll be in a profitable range. But up here, $12, $13, I can't say for sure that we're going to hold that. I want to transition over to talk about corn and soybeans. The Brazilian, Argentine crop years are ongoing. Um, The state of the crop in South America has gone out of the spotlight as the issues in Ukraine have taken center stage. But talk to us about USDA's updates on corn supplies and what kind of the global picture looks like as wheat might be the focus in Eastern Europe, but still a lot of corn in the world. What's the update there? Yes, very true and good point. The corn estimates in Wednesday's report were not uh, adjusted very much at all. Really, Ukraine's corn crop was uh, reduced 1 million metric tons from 54 down to 53 million metric ton. Brazil's corn crop stayed the same. 
at 114. And of course, that second corn crop is the more important corn crop in Brazil, and that's just being planted as we speak. So there was not a big change on the South American estimates for corn. Of course, the big question mark we all have is Ukraine going to be able to even plant a corn crop or harvest their winter wheat this year, given the fighting and the whole situation that's happening in the, the country right now. And that remains to be seen. But keep in mind that in this particular WASDE report, we're not looking at any new crop estimates yet. So the big questions still go unanswered and unestimated. I want to talk a little bit about the demand side as well. I think there's been a lot of, as we've seen, a very short time period of rapid increase in gasoline prices across the globe, but in the U.S. in particular, since the president's announcement this week, uh, a renewed focus on ethanol and ethanol's part in that and what ethanol's role could be in a bigger shifting energy policy. Has Did USDA acknowledge any kind of shift in terms of ethanol demand for corn? We actually did see a 25 million bushel increase in the amount of corn they're estimating uh, for ethanol production this year. And I think that was warranted because the ethanol production pace so far this season is up 11% from a year ago. So it's maintaining a fairly active pace, even though inventories have ballooned up lately. They're, they're at their highest level in almost two years, but the pace of production continues. And as you say, what better time could there be than to have ethanol help the situation by stretching those fuel supplies? So I think there is going to be a lot of pressure to uh, loosen up some of the constraints on allowing us to blend more ethanol into the fuel supply. Whether that gets accepted politically or not remains to be seen. But really, this is, I think, the most bullish situation for biofuels to play a part that we've seen ever since the ethanol mandate was first created. And that was also at a similar time when we had rising crude oil prices heading to $100 and above. Talk to us a little bit about the other demand factors for corn. China is always top of mind for folks. Since we've talked in February, any shifts there or big demand signals that might indicate any trends that are emerging right now for corn demand globally? Yes. I think we've talked before that China bought quite a bit of corn from us, about 475 million bushels back in May of 2021 for the season that we're currently in. And then we haven't heard from them much uh, the last 10 months, and uh, it's been very quiet. And yet, as we look at prices in China, they're still quite expensive. They're $11.48 a bushel as of we, as we speak on, here on Thursday morning. So it tells me that they still have a strong need for corn. Their, their demand is as high as ever. They had been getting their corn recently from Ukraine. Obviously, that's problematic for them now, and so that's why I keep expecting them to come back into the market. It was interesting that we just got our weekly export sales report this morning. And guess what? We had a new marketing year high of old crop corn sales and the largest buyer was unknown destination. So it makes me believe that guess what? China's back in the US uh, for corn again. Obviously I can't prove that yet, but the stars certainly seem to be aligning to that. Talk to us as well about where all of this has left kind of corn basis in at the moment and where that fits into kind of the last couple of months and where you might see it going in the next couple of months. Yeah, this is where traditional people in agriculture, what I'm about to say could be very confusing, but you almost need to set aside your old views of what basis is for a moment. Let me just talk about the cash corn price that we see offered across the Midwest for one second before we get to the basis topic. 
So DTN's national corn index is up above $7 as a national average. It was $7.14 on Tuesday. $7.14 as a national average of cash bids. That's up almost a dollar from what we saw a month earlier. Now, those are very strong cash bids across the country. It's a very bullish situation for corn. And to have that kind of physical demand in the country is just incredible for this time of year. Now, traditionally, when we say basis, we would be comparing that cash price to the May futures contract. But in this case, that the situation that we're currently in, that May futures contract has gotten so exaggerated upward on the board that a lot of commercials have said, we're not going to price our grain off of the May contract anymore. And they've shifted out to the July, which is a lower price, but they find more representative of the supply and demand situation for physical corn in the country. So if we looked at the cash price in relation to May, as we would traditionally do this time of year, it looks like we had a big drop in basis as, as corn is 39 cents below the May contract. But that's, it's really not bearish as it might look on the surface. Compared to the July contract, we're 12 cents below that contract. And if you have to stick basis in your head and stick with that concept, I would suggest that you refer it to the July contract where most of the commercials across the country are going. But this is one point and one case in time where the futures market, for lots of reasons, and, and this is uh, also due to a highly speculative influence in corn right now, and the problem of people trying to cover shorts in the market, the futures market has just gotten detached from reality. And there's so much fear and uncertainty from the Ukraine situation that we've got a futures market that's really not serving the, the commercial or cash side uh, of the market right now. So commercials, as I say, they've shifted to July as a more reasonable representative of what the supply situation is like right now. I want to pause and talk a little bit more about that because inflation has been a big topic of conversation. I think before the Ukraine conflict really erupted into the hot war that it is now, inflation was already an issue. We, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about one, what inflation causes people, investors, traders to do in the market, and then how is that playing into what we're seeing right now in terms of those futures markets, in terms of how we're seeing prices move and contracts come up and any thoughts on how farmers should be thinking about that and thinking about, is this all going to be very short term? Is this just a um, crisis of confidence that might be over in a month or two? Or is this something to expect that we might have to adjust the way we're thinking about some of these key indicators for a while? First of all, the inflation problem is not going to be easily solved. And I don't think it's going to be solved this calendar year. And it's uh, very difficult. And it's not um, just a monetary situation, as we've discussed in the past. It's really related to the, the hit that the U.S. has taken to production and then worldwide, the hits that have happened to production. So the inflation ball really got rolling after the pandemic. We lost 25% of our crude oil production right away. Uh, a lot of those oil and gas companies filed for bankruptcy in 2020. It's not been easy to get that U.S. oil production back. And we're still uh, 1.4 million barrels a day short of the production level we had before the pandemic. Then also OPEC and Russia has been slow to rebound in their oil production. And their oil production has not really kept pace with the rebound in demand that we've seen since the pandemic. 
And then you add to it this whole Ukraine war situation. And now the U.S. just banned Russian oil. The U.K. is looking at cutting off its supplies from Russia as of the end of 2022. European nations are looking for ways to reduce their dependency on Russia's natural gas. So all of this is creating a very tight world oil supply situation that is not going to be easy to fix overnight. And obviously, we need to be less dependent on Russia for energy and a lot of things. And we need to be able to cut ties there. And that's uh, all well and good. But it's going to be a, a tight, tough situation in the meantime. And that's going to contribute to rising prices on a lot of levels. And it's not something that the Federal Reserve can fix with a few interest rate increases. They'll do their part. But actually, the oil price spiking higher the way it has, it it hit $130 earlier this week. I think as those prices at the gas pump get higher, that's actually going to be a healthy, much needed effect that we have so that we tighten down our energy supply right now for the moment to get through this thing because it is a critical supply situation. This is no time to be wasting energy for unessential reasons. So it's just a situation along with the port congestion and the shipping problems we have. These things are not uh, going to be fixed easily and it's We really need a time of peace for producers to feel confident about uh, getting out there and producing all they can. And the same is true of the oil and gas industry. They need to get out there and uh, do the most they can, too. Before we switch over to soybeans, I want to ask one other question, which I, I think has been floating around. I've seen some interesting conversations about the idea of corn is at some all of the major commodities, corn, soybeans, wheat are at some incredibly high prices, some very favorable conditions in the market right now. And I think we've officially hit the point where people are starting to be concerned that they might be too high and worried about (laughs) the kind of adjacent, you know, livestock producers worrying about feed costs, ethanol blenders worried about contributing to that rising price of gasoline. I'm curious for your take on what that is and whether there might be a moderation at some point coming or an adjustment down or it seems like the indicators might be that there's even more upside here. Is that something that ag should be worried about? wonder about your thoughts. Yeah. In, in this situation, my heart really goes out to the livestock producers that are uh, needing to buy meal in this type of situation and finding it quite painful uh, to do so. Now, on the hog and poultry side, they've had a nice big profit margin to help absorb some of those more expensive costs. But in the livestock arena, it's still a fairly tight situation and the corn prices are not helping and might encourage some more liquidation this summer, which uh, would be tough, along with the drought situation. On the cattle side of things, it is it is very concerning, I think, at the moment. Overall, I, I think getting the word out ahead of time that these supplies are tight and if you need them, you really need to plan ahead and do your best uh, to try to get through this situation. It, so much of it hinges on if Ukraine is going to be allowed to plant a crop this year, corn, wheat, barley, whatever. And also just the emotional ties to the situation that's happening in Ukraine. As awful as it looks right now with heavy shelling of cities and even civilian populations, Putin could turn that even worse. And that would add just more fear and panic to the markets that are already panicked right now. So it's very difficult to answer (laughs) because of all those unknowns. 
And because we can't really trust that, Putin has a logical part in his brain that says, okay, even this is getting too crazy. He doesn't seem to have that faculty. So it continues in my mind to be a very dangerous situation. Let's talk a little bit about soybeans. I'm curious about USDA's production adjustments in this WASD, especially as I think soybeans might be, correct me if I'm wrong, might be the bigger wild card in the upcoming prospective planting report of, we've talked about wheat and that people might switch to some wheat, but it seems more likely that people would switch to soybeans from corn than from corn to wheat. Um, Talk to us a little bit about what USDA put in this report and yeah, what you think that might mean as producers who are having a hard time still finding fertilizer, affording fertilizer, are reporting to USDA what they expect to plant this year. Yeah, that'll come out at the end of the month, the prospective planning's report, and we'll see what that USDA survey said. The The difficult thing about that survey, Sarah, is that we can't really always rely on it as a reliable indicator of what's actually going to be planted. And of course, from March 31st until the time crops actually do get planted, sometimes weather can really interrupt and change plans in that situation and make people scramble. But there, there will be a lot of attention on that report. It'll probably get more attention than it deserves at the end of March. At the end of the day, I don't think that we'll know much more about the planning mix that's going to actually happen than we do before the report. But call me a little skeptical on uh, that survey. It, uh, there, there is a lot of uncertainty in this year's mix. And I think one of the things that maybe keeps me grounded is that a year ago when we were talking about what are farmers going to plant, the situation was just as bright and optimistic as it possibly could be. We had extremely high prices of both corn and soybeans, and they were making new highs almost every day on the way to the planting period. We also had a wonderful opportunity of planting like there There were almost no prevented acres in last year's uh, planting situation. Even the wettest areas had dried out by springtime and allowed for planting. And we have much the similar situation happening this year so far. The reason I point that out is last year we ended up with roughly 180 million acres of corn and soybean total. And if the situation was as good as it was last year, and we only got 180 million total then. I don't think we can come up with much more than 180 million total this year. I think that's just all the available ground we have. Now, I would love to be surprised by the market and find out that some acres were hiding somewhere that could be added to that mix because I think we're really going to need the, the production. But given the 180 total, then the question is how much corn and how much soybeans. And I still have to give it uh, a rough, roughly even mix of corn to soybeans this year. Right now, as I pencil out the numbers and estimate costs best I can with the higher fertilizer and all that, it looks to me that corn still has about a $50 to $100 an acre bushel advantage over soybeans. But that's based on the new crop futures prices. Now, some people, when they pencil things out, they might have different prices in their mind of what things will actually be like in fall. Five of us could do this and get five different returns and <laughs> answers to the question. Overall, as I talk to producers, most of them still like to stay to their traditional 50-50 rotation on the corn and beans. And I think there's still uh, a corn advantage, built-in advantage, 
for a corn acres overall. But my best guess this year is that we're going to have 88 or 89 million acres each of corn and soybeans. And we're going to lose some of the corn soybean total to possibly wheat in the Western Corn Belt or other crop opportunities in the Western Corn Belt. There is concern about drought this year. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw another little increase in sorghum and possibly cotton, things like that. I want to talk about soybean demand, exports, crush, anything that you saw in this report that makes you think that there is any kind of significant changing trends afoot? USDA did not have a lot to say about that. They kept the crush estimate unchanged. They did reduce the uh, amount of soybean oil used for biofuels by a small amount. But they made up that bio, that soybean oil demand in other ways, so that that bio, soybean oil demand also stayed unchanged as did demand in this report. So USDA did not have a lot to say about it. We still see crush values that remain historically attractive, and they continue to stay ahead of the soybean rally, which is really unusual in this situation, and just testifies to the the strong demand that we're seeing for both meal and bean oil check us in on soybean basis is are we seeing similar effects on the corn side as on the soybean side yeah now it's basically the same situation i described for corn we have not seen as many commercial entities shift yet from may to july but they're looking at the same disparity in prices where the may prices have really ballooned up more than the july so it wouldn't surprise me if more uh, commercials don't start shifting to the july contract in the days ahead but It's another situation where the cash soybean prices themselves remain extraordinarily. So we've got cash soybean prices across the country averaging over $16 a bushel. Obviously, that's just uh, phenomenal for this time of year. You talked a little bit about feed and impacts there, but (laughs) do you have any thoughts on pork, beef, other updates on that? I did. They they made minor tweaks uh, to the report. They increased their production estimate for beef, 195 million pounds. Uh, Overall, they're still looking for a 1% drop in production this year. For pork, they reduced their production estimate, 65 million pounds. That's not much uh, in the scheme of things. So they're looking for pork uh, production to be down 1%, and they're looking for poultry production to be up 1% this year. They did reduce the poultry production estimate, 255 million pounds. That's a small amount in the scheme of things, but I was interested, are they going to make some nod to the situation of seeing more occurrences of avian influenza across the Midwest? And of course, those cases have picked up this week, so that not all of that information would have been available uh, at the time the WASD report was being put together, but that's certainly something we're going to have to watch in the days ahead. Uh, I just want to touch on a couple of other big picture. Along with inflation, you know, I think we've seen fuel prices go up a lot. Farmers starting to take that into account as part of their accounting for this year as, well, I'm not exactly sure how you'd even do it, given that the prices are going up like day over day, week over week. (laughs) We've gained like 80 cents on average a gallon in the week. So I'm not exactly sure how you plan for that expectation. But talk to us a little bit about, do you expect to see some of that impact be reflected in the market? At this point, I, I think the commitment is very high to get crops planted in spite of the expensive diesel prices that they're going to be facing. And the crop insurance being at a high level this year, I think, helps boost confidence that we're going to see plenty of aggressive planning going on. There's no reason to hold back. 
And those higher costs this year are really unfortunate. But as you say, we've got corn and bean prices at nine-year highs, Chicago wheat prices at all-time highs, and Kansas City wheat right behind it. At this point, they're all going together. (laughs) I'm curious just for an update in terms of Russian sanctions. We saw two big first tranches from both Europe and the Biden administration last week, but it seems like there is appetite for more. We did the ban on Russian oil this week. I'm curious, just from your perspective, as and if sanctions continue to escalate, collateral damage there in terms of global markets or difficulties like on the financial side or on the transport side? Does it seem like ag markets will be largely insulated from that kind of issue besides just the general uncertainty? Or are you worried that the rapidly shifting financial landscape in Europe and the US might impact the way that people are viewing risk in ag markets? Yeah, it certainly doesn't help our ability to get uh, fertilizer supplies. So whatever fertilizers we were getting from Russia and or China, if they're going to stick together in this, is going to be off the table probably for at least a year. And and that does not help us on the supply situation for fertilizers. That's the first thing that comes to mind uh, when I think about the ag picture. Generally, as a world market, it's going to be tough, especially you talk about rising energy prices and difficulties in transporting goods and all the things that goes on. There's going to be repercussions felt around the world. Wouldn't be surprised to see economic growth slow in a lot of areas to compensate for all the restrictions that are going on. Russia's economy, their, their ruble has lost basically a third of its value throughout this situation And it it could be a very tough summer, I think, for the Russian economy. And that'll be interesting to see how that all plays out, because these are some very severe, very strict sanctions. And we have yet to see how it's going to influence our markets around the world. Obviously, companies that uh, are used to doing business with Russia are going to be severely hurt in this situation. And we'll just have to see what else comes out of it. But there's so many tentacles. We're really... The world is not an isolated place anymore. We're all very connected, as we saw during the pandemic, how it doesn't take long for news and viruses to spread. That's true of everything else with our world interaction. One last very quick question. As we watch, talked about perspective planting, we have an April WASD coming up. We are also getting daily news from Ukraine, if not more frequently than that. But there's still weather happening in South America. There's still weather happening in the U.S. There's, you know, so many different kind of factors to keep an eye on. I'm curious what you'll be following most closely for the next few weeks in terms of potential to move markets. Yeah, maybe this is a good time to mention once again that For people that are traditionally focused on the fundamental supply side of the market and are very used to being dependent on what USDA says about the situation, you're going to just constantly be several months behind the times as far as the market's concerned. Those fundamentals are often looking backwards and are really not including or reflecting the concerns that the market has right now about what lies ahead. So I would encourage people really to pay much more attention to the unfolding news in front of us. And as far as the market goes, really, this is the time where the technical type of analysis really shines. It's paying attention to what prices are actually doing in the market uh, that are probably going to tip us off to what direction or what changes are actually taking place better than any report that we could ever read that comes out. Now, 
that technical following is very difficult to do when things are as volatile as they are. So you do have to give uh, some leeway. But if you start seeing certain old support levels being broken, for instance, that would be highly significant in a situation like this. Lots of times the market is its own best clue of what lies ahead. So that plus the events that are unfolding before us are, are really the best we have to go on for the moment. You can read Todd's full analysis and up-to-the-minute reporting on all things ag markets at DTNPF.com or in the monthly DTN Progressive Farmer magazine. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer, with special thanks to Todd Holtman. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until then, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Weather Station. Are you looking to get more accurate, hyper-local weather information? By gathering weather and agronomic data directly from your own fields, DTN Ag Weather Station supports you when making targeted decisions around expensive or high-risk activities like chemical applications and irrigation. DTN's Ag Weather Station can be purchased for as low as $9 a month depending on your current customer status with DTN. If you're looking to increase your weather accuracy while saving time, please visit DTN.com.